You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 19th of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show... It's a suffering tape. It's a terrible tape. I've been fully briefed on it. Uh, There's no reason for me to hear it. In fact, I said to the people, should I? They said, you really shouldn't. Donald Trump stands by Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, despite evidence suggesting the prince was involved in the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Democracy in the spotlight. Three activists go on trial for organising protests calling for direct elections for Hong Kong's leader. Plus... Don't just listen to the politicians. Listen to what business is saying. Listen to what business that is providing your jobs and ensuring that you have that, uh, that income that puts food on the table for your family is saying. And business is saying we want a good deal with the EU and we want a good trading relationship with the European Union. As Prime Minister Theresa May sells her Brexit vision to Britain's businesses, the UN says her government's austerity-based policies have brought misery to millions. My guests Ivor Gabel and Peter Goodman will be discussing these and the day's other top story. The social network giant Facebook gives $5.7 million to local newspaper groups in the UK. Why? That's all to come on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Ivor Gaber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex, and Peter Goodman. He's the Global Economic Correspondent for the New York Times. Gentlemen, welcome to the programme. Now, a CIA report into the murder of the dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi asserts that Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered his killing. Mr. Khashoggi died in October after entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to collect his marriage documents. The Saudis initially denied he had been harmed, although the government rode back from that as evidence of Mr. Khashoggi's murder piled up. For the US President Donald Trump, the affair puts him in a difficult position. Should he believe his intelligence service, which will release the report on Tuesday, or worsen the already strained relationship he has with them by siding with the prince who has denied ordering the killing? Peter, it seems pretty clear from the vacillation and comments that he's made in the past and indeed today that he is actually standing by the prince. Yeah, I mean, who knows what Donald Trump believes about anything? We only know what he says and what he does. This is somewhat reminiscent of when he stood in Helsinki next to Vladimir Putin and took Putin's word on uh, this claim that he, no, of course, he had not done anything to undermine the American presidential election, despite the fact that his intelligence agencies have uh, universally concluded that the Russians were directly involved. What's interesting here and disturbing, I mean, the, the Saudi U.S relationship is, of course, very lucrative for American arms contractors. And Trump is famously a transactional person, a transactional president. But it's important to remember that it's not just a question of sort of real politic American and commercial interests versus the spirit of democracy and transparency. It's it's much more complex than that in that Donald Trump and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, have personally done business with the Saudis. We still don't don't see the president's tax returns. Uh, that's secret. I mean, every other president. Well, not has for much longer, their... given the way that uh, the, the two houses. Well, we'll, have, have you know, shifted. we'll see what happens once the Democrats step into the House in in January. But the point is, we really don't know uh, what 
potential personal commercial engagements are on the line here as uh, conflicts with potential American policy. Uh, let, let's develop that point, Ivo. I, I mean, the, the, the obvious undertone really to what, what Peter is saying there is that, look, you know, this, it's the, the, the public front of this is that Saudi Arabia is a very important strategic partner to head off Iran. But dig a little bit deeper. There's something more at stake here. In other words, it's the financial relationship between the Trump family and the Saudi authorities. Well, I'm not sure it's either or. I mean, I think it's both. They happen to work together. I mean, John Bolton, for example, has for the last 20 years been tr- gunning, to use an awful pun for, for Iran. Um, the, the Whether it is Mr. Trump's financial, in, in Mr. Trump's financial interest to keep his dealings with Saudi under wraps, I know not. But... If he does and he wants to keep them on the side, so does Mr. Bolton and others in the administration for strategic reasons. So I think it's a happy coming together of motives. I do think, though, that it could come a little unstuck. I mean, firstly, he has, this will come as a surprise to listeners, Mr. Trump has exaggerated the amount of money that Saudis are allegedly investing in the American it's arms industry. It's a billion, multi-billion yeah, yeah, dollar and contracts. It, it, no, and it, it, that, that, that's, just sort of, that's just sort of in the best possible world it could be. But also, um, this notion that he has a secret, he has a cunning plan to solve the Middle East, Jared's pet project. I thought it was very interesting today that the king of Saudi Arabia, who emerged to do his annual address, actually restated the Saudis' position on Israel-Palestine. Whereas we were expecting this magic solution where all of a sudden Saudi and Gulf states suddenly say, yeah, no, no, we see the Israelis' point of view, we'll do it, you know, we're, we're going to back a peace deal. It doesn't feel like that. So I think it could come unstuck. Yeah, and this is the point, isn't it, Peter? This touches on a much wider uh, foreign policy issue here with the Americans because Ivor was talking there about the embassies. Yes, the US embassy has relocated to Jerusalem. The Brazilians said they're going to do exactly the same thing. But we don't see anybody else following on that. And doesn't this really point to the further divide between America and its traditional foreign policy allies? Well, very much so. I mean, there's been no continuity and a lot of alliances have been torn up. I mean, Barack Obama was engaged in a kind of gradualist pivot to Iran. I mean, trying to normalize or or, or at least, you know, soothe uh, long-term tensions between the United States and Iran uh, and bring, uh, many would say, more balance to Middle Eastern policy. I mean, he was he was critical of the Israelis on the building of settlements. He, he did not just sort of give them a blank security check, even while Israel remained, mm. of course. Carrot and stick, States basically. Uh, well, there was a pivot away from the Saudis, and and that that's been undone. So now now we're back to you know a very clear uh, the Saudis uh, at the center of of the map for the United States and the Middle East, and w- whatever Benjamin Netanyahu wants, uh, he seems to get from Donald Trump. But let, let's take it back to that point which I raised in the beginning, Ivor, about uh, the relationship with the intelligence community. Could this be ch- Trump's last chance? In that we saw what happened with the Russians because he he clearly put the truthfulness of Vladimir Putin above that of his own intelligence community. Relationships were frayed. This report is coming out on Tuesday. So could he potentially repair the damage from um, the Russian fiasco if he actually reads this report and says, do you know what? What my guys have come up with is so is so compelling I really should go with it. And you said Am that I with, being stupidly optimistic? Well, no, I, you said that with a straight face. I thought that was great. No, of course not. I mean, the, um, he said, he only, I think it was only today, he said he's not going to meet Mueller, who happens to be very senior in the CIA. No, I mean, Trump will plough his own furrow um, in the face of um, CIA, FBI, 
Congress. I mean, we're dealing with something, I mean, I'm sure Peter will agree, we're dealing with something, an unprecedented president. And so to try and yeah. talk about him obeying any sort of normal rules of behaviour. So I don't think that Tuesday, it's, it's tomorrow indeed, will be pivotal. I think if it, if it doesn't suit Trump's purposes, he'll continue ploughing his own furrow. So, so that's yeah. it. No chance of even uh, well, giving a, a gentle nod to the intelligence community. Actually, I get I get where you're coming from here. And yes, I do do support it. But facts don't have an enormous amount of currency in the Trump White House. And uh, I, I, I think it's correct to say that we're dealing with a sort of reality television presidency and, and the imperatives change from day to day. There isn't a lot of strategic continuity. Uh, we don't really know what prompted Trump on this particular day. Uh, to side uh, with his own viewpoint, however he arrived at it, as opposed to what the CIA is telling him. And we don't know what could change tomorrow. There could be some reason to change the subject. We And again, we're completely in the dark about his personal financial interests. So there's not a lot of facts to work with here. What we know uh, is that one arm of the government that's supposed to find out what's actually happening has said one thing and the president's saying another. I know that you want to add to this as well, well I Just one PS, which is the real world. There is some a tiny slither of good news. I don't know how it relates to Khashoggi and Trump, but the Houthis who have been at war with the Saudis and have been punished from air, air support coming from the US have agreed to a ceasefire. Um, half the country literally is starving. That has to be good news. I'm trying to put together the pieces as to if that relates in any way to Trump, but I think we have to acknowledge that if Saudi is pulling back from its murderous campaign in Yemen, that is a good thing. And if Mr. Trump wishes to claim credit for it, fine. OK, let's move away then from Saudi and Washington, in fact, to, to Hong Kong, where three of Hong Kong's most high-profile democracy activists are amongst nine people who've pleaded not guilty to charges of public nuisance for their involvement in a series of street protests back in 2014. If convicted, the three could be jailed for up to seven years. The mass protests that became known as the Umbrella Movement had called for direct elections for Hong Kong's leader, a position that is appointed by Beijing. Now, Peter, this trial will be very closely watched by Beijing. Well, I mean, this trial is probably being dictated by Beijing. This is this, this, this is this is the fear. I mean, I mean, the real the real question here is: to what extent can people in Hong Kong at this point uh, retain any hopes that they will enjoy the rights that they were promised under the terms of the 1997 agreement that handed Hong Kong back to China? There was supposed to be uh, one China, two systems. Hong Kong would retain its independent judiciary, its right to elect its own leaders, its right to have a freedom of speech. And, you know, systematically, one by one, each of these rights has been uh, pretty severely trampled on. And, and when you speak to people in Hong Kong who've lived there for a long time, unfortunately, uh, hopes are, are really dwindling. And there's a sense that this is really just a show trial, uh, that the, the verdict is done. I mean, it seems pretty clear that uh, that, that this movement was uh, using freedom of speech in a, in a very clear and traditional way. And, and in uh, the current circumstance, that's not okay because China's calling the shots. Mm. And this, this is just another nail in the coffin for that idea of one country, two systems. If, if you take that perspective, the, the gradually well, erosion of, of some of the basic rights. Yeah, although I think anybody who is British speaks with some caution about democracy in Hong Kong because when it was a British colony for a hundred years, we never had, we never allowed the Hong Kong people to elect their own leader. It was the governor, did a fine job, 
So um, we have to tread with a little tre- care, but I, I, I do think it's terribly sad um, that this rowback is happening. I suppose it, it was possibly inevitable, but I, I have a lot of Hong Kong students who back in, in, in 2014 were really enthusiastic about the, mm. the umbrella movement. They really thought things were happening. Um, I suppose this was a late flowering of the, of the Arab Spring, so to speak, having swept eastwards. Um, and now they are resigned and they're no longer angry. They just shrug their shoulders. And when I try and discuss with them the differences between, would this be Beijing's view or, or, or you know, they say, well, you know, the Chinese government is increasingly writ. I mean, as a two two other factors one is we must not forget the sad case of the hong kong booksellers who were literally kidnapped Mm. by the chinese and now have come back to hong kong and now sell no literature which isn't approved by the chinese and secondly this is and not dissimilar to the khashoggi case yet another issue of media freedom of press freedom being trampled and crushed and 20 years ago people like peter and i would sit in the studio and and say you know the world is becoming a freer place and it's not now and that's really quite depressing but i I guess peter that whatever the chinese are doing it is clearly working because if either students young people we see as the future are saying well what's the point because it's all stitched up anyway so they may go back to hong kong and whatever urge there is to to resist is basically flies away because they they know that um They'll, they'll be harassed. They, they may go, go to, to prison. Well, what, what, it's, it's actually much go? more subtle than that. I mean, yeah, if, if you have the audacity to go and challenge Chinese authority, you can go find out what the inside of a prison cell looks like. But, I mean, for most people in China, that's, that's, that's not required. This is the most successful authoritarian project ever. Uh, you have uh, large numbers of highly educated, I'm talking about in mainland China, highly educated, sophisticated people who certainly know how the rest of the world works. They travel there. Uh, they know how to use a virtual private network to read what parts of the web they can't get to through the the fire, I mean, the firewall of, of China mm-hmm. blocks uh, ma- many sites. Pe- people understand that, but what they care about most, and I'm speaking uh, generally, of course, is that uh, 800 million people have been lifted out of poverty, and there's an awful lot of economic opportunity. And by the way, let's look at what's happened in the democratic world just in the last 10 years uh, uh, since uh, the global financial crisis. Uh, and that's the we've point, had, isn't it? I mean, we're going to get to Facebook later. We've had, you know, the undermining of democratic elections in the United States, in Britain, in France. We've had tremendous financial volatility. I mean, these have not been great days for democracy. And uh, Ch- Chinese people who remember the Cultural Revolution tend to have a pretty pragmatic view of things and and things have been stable so they're, they're not inclined to make a fuss over over things like democracy and that's the point isn't it either that you could if you're very cynical you could turn around and say look well you know the west has actually done china's work for it because you know we, it, you know the uk we're tied up in the brexit argument and the various issues about democracy that brings to the surface democracy has brought donald trump a very volatile character to power in the united states of america and of course off the back of that you've got various nationalist movements spread around europe and elsewhere yeah but um i think there's a difference between china and by the way there's a lovely headline in t- just in today's latest um, new york times following what peter said it says the american dream is alive in china yeah. hmm. um but to, to to follow your point i think um russia has been actively working to disrupt western democracies very successfully i'm not sure and i stand to be corrected that china has been so actively involved chinese propaganda is much more in your face obvious if you like Mm. i'm not aware i mean the great firewall of china is a defensive mechanism i'm not aware of reports of them going out and making the mischief that we 
it looks pretty convincing. Oh, and, and I'm not and, suggesting otherwise. I, I'm, I'm talking about simply laying down markers uh, for what societal aspirations are supposed to be. And I mean, if you look, for instance, at the fact that Hollywood movies are increasingly bankrolled uh, by mm. Chinese ventures and feature Chinese heroes, and it's it's often about you know stability, uh, rescuing Chinese people who are in distress in mm. conflict zones where Western authority has failed. It's it it's not even. I mean, to, to 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 your very point, it's not about having to monkey wrench democratic systems. Democratic systems are doing that mm. all by themselves. I mean, the UK is tied up in Brexit. Uh, the United States is effectively politically dysfunctional and, and, and rife with division. Fake news is everywhere. I mean, China uh, can simply carry on according to its own rules, which are not democratic. Uh, they don't involve respect for minority views, but they involve stability, investment, and rising mm. living standards, which seems to keep a and lot of people happy. And that's the point, happy. isn't it, Ivor? Why use an iron fist when money can do the talking? Because we've also seen some phenomenal engineering projects in China. I'm thinking specifically about the high-speed rail link and that new mega bridge, you know, connecting the city with the Pearl River Delta. So soft power does it. Yeah, well, I'm dying to to, to, to cross that bridge. It, it looks fantastic. But um, I mean, just to be um, don my pr- professorial hat <laughs> and say, man cannot live by bread alone or person shall not live by bread alone. Eventually, once you have created sufficient level of affluence, people do start wanting freedom. I mean, you know, one also could start quoting Jean-Jacques Rousseau about man is born in cha- man is born free and everywhere in chains. I do think there is an Im- a human impulse for freedom, but that's we're talking decades, if not centuries. I'm afraid okay. that thesis is coming in for a stiff. <laughs> okay, as a sound note on which to end this section of the program. But you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Peter Goodman, and Ivor Gaber. Join Monocle's double issue of Seasonal Celebrations. Our bumper December-January edition is an essential guide to being the perfect host this holiday. We focus on the art of entertaining, how to create the most welcoming home, and the best gifts you should be giving. But before you get too comfortable, join the roller coaster ride of our annual Soft Power Survey. He's also a believer in soft power and he's also a believer in that France can do good in the world and that French culture is something to be championed and to be celebrated at this point. Think big, we have some serious sit-down interviews with the likes of Christiane Amonpour and music sensation Christine and the Queens. Chris. More lessons are learned in our business section where we ask rebels, thinkers and fixers to tell us about the moments that changed their life in 2018. While in culture... Eurovision Song Contest and Pulitzer Prize winners alike reveal what happens after the prize and why winning is not always the best pathway to success. In design, we dim the lamps and unveil a manifesto on good lighting, as well as visiting a very special Zurich apartment with a host who's mastered the art of cosy in a confined space. Monocle's December-January issue is out now. Get your copy or subscribe at monocle.com. Well, still with me are Ivor Gable and Peter Goodman. Now, 
Theresa May has been selling her vision of Brexit to the UK business community. During a speech in London, the Prime Minister assured the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, that her draft Brexit withdrawal plans would lead to greater prosperity and a skills-based migration system. However, her optimism has been overshadowed by the gloomy findings of a UN report, which says her government's austerity policies have inflicted great misery on some of the most vulnerable people in the country. Now, this report, Peter, is due to be published next year, but the contents make for some very disturbing and uncomfortable reading. But you have to ask yourself, given that we're all talking Brexit, will it really make any difference? Uh, well, it's certainly not going to help. Uh, there's no scenario where Brexit produces a wealthier nation that has more resources to throw at uh, all sorts of problems from uh, the crisis in the National Health Service to uh, the lack of social care to municipalities that are seeing their budgets slashed. I mean, I was in Liverpool a couple months ago where they're dealing with a 64% cut in the city budget over the last eight years. I mean, you you think about that. That's just astonishing. I visited with the fire chief who was telling me that, you know, it's beyond what you would think hearing such a number. They've closed, I think it was five of 27 fire stations and response times are down a little bit. And he had a couple of examples of, you know, places where people died, where maybe the second engine could have shown up more quickly. But he said, no, it's worse than that. Because the social care has been cut, which has nothing to do with his budget, he knows that there are old people who used to get visits, who aren't getting visited at home, the mental health services have been cut. So there are old people who might be hoarders, who have big piles of newspaper, and assistance for people who lose their electrical service has been cut. So you've got old people hoarding newspapers, using candles to read, nobody visiting them, and that rolls up to the fire chief. Mm -hmm. That problem does not get better by exiting from the European Union and potentially interfering with the largest source of uh, exports, the largest export destination for, for British companies. Mm, and and let, let's develop this a little bit further, Ivor, because if those UN findings do hold up, where does this leave the Brexiteers and, and the promise of, of greater prosperity? Because so the theory goes, this is what we were told in 2016, is that money gets freed up, money that goes to Europe, it comes to, to us, the UK, and that it means that the government can afford to be a bit more spend, generous with spending on the NHS and indeed elsewhere. Well, there's what the psychologists would call cognitive dissonance amongst the Brexiteers, who see no connection anyway between austerity, which they would argue was a perfectly sensible policy to get Britain back on its feet. And they weren't the only ones doing it, in fairness. Uh, well, it was the Conservative government's mm. policy. But, it, but in terms of other countries as well, because some, some other but countries... But not for were... so long, not persistently sure. for so long, when all the evidence started to piling up, <laughs> suggesting that investment was a better way um, than austerity of getting out, of, as President Obama demonstrated so dramatically. But to come back to your question, um, it's a very sore point in this country now. There was this famous Brexit bus that went round telling people that we give the EU £350 million a week and why don't we take that back and give it to the NHS? On many levels, that was what's technically known as a lie. People now don't believe it. Um, and when Brexiteers are now, they're sounding very hollow. I think I'm betraying my own vague prejudice here, but they sound very hollow when they suggest we're going to have this economic bonanza. As Peter said, there is... No, there is no way that Brexit is going to be a plus for the British economy. So what we're talking about is austerity plus. We've got austerity 
and we're going to have even more problems with the public finances as a result. I wish I could be a bit more positive, but I can't. So oh, the answer dear. is no. Well you're, well, you're contradicting the positivity of the Chancellor, Philip Hammond, because he recently said that austerity is over. But let, let's broaden this out in the time available, because you, you can't really get away from the politics of, of Brexit. But look, Theresa May had a pretty tumultuous week last week because she introduced the, the draft withdrawal plan. We know that even though the Cabinet said yes, well, she told us that the Cabinet supported it. We now know that quite a few members of the Cabinet don't like it. Some of them resigned. There was an attempt to force a vote of no confidence, but the necessary votes to trigger that haven't happened. Do you feel that with the backing of business behind her, Peter, she can at least stave off that threat of a vote of no confidence? even though this this withdrawal bill is, is, isn't is really likely to get through Parliament. That's where the smart money's going. I, I have no idea. I think anyone who thinks they know what's going to happen has no idea what's happening. Uh, I mean, the, there's so much up in the air. Uh, it is clear that business is buying into the this sort of binary question that Theresa May has teed up, that the choice now is between uh, crashing out of the European Union with no deal or this deal that has a lot in it for everyone to dislike. Uh, and and uh, given that unpalatable choice, the choice is you don't crash out, you take the deal. Yes, for some business interests, uh, that's that that's the way you go. But the uncertainty doesn't go away. This was the point that Jeremy Corbyn uh, tried to make uh, today. Uh, the uncertainty just gets sort of kicked further down the road. So if you're an auto manufacturer and you've been using Britain as your base to make cars that you can sell across the continent, knowing that you know every couple of years or four years or however many years the transition period will be extended, we're going to have this whole you know existential, agonizing, tedious debate again. I don't think that puts you in the mood to write a giant check to open a factory here when you go open a factory in Spain or the Czech Republic or somewhere else. So I, I, I would hesitate to assume that big business and the markets are going to carry the day here and deliver a deal. Right. So, so they're on board at the moment. But I guess, Iva, the, the much bigger question is that if Theresa May doesn't survive this, then yes, there will be another Conservative Party leader, but does it automatically follow that there could be a general election pretty darn quickly, given that whoever takes over from her would not really be negotiating on their own mandate as such? Well, to echo Peter's, any uh, what I'm about to say might be completely untrue in a half an hour's time because things are moving so fast. <laughs> or 30 seconds' time. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, and it's a big but, I believe that Conservative MPs fear a Corbyn government more than they fear Brexit. So I don't believe there's going to be a snap election. I think they're going to do everything they can to hang on to nurse for fear of something worse. Right. So, so in other words, the, the, the fear surrounding Jeremy Corbyn still holds. Finally, Facebook is giving $5.7 million to local newspaper groups in the UK to help them recruit and train new journalists. The cash will be administered by the National Council for the Training of Journalists and, in the words of Facebook, will encourage more reporting from towns which have lost their local newspaper and beat reporters. Ironically, the advertising revenue for most local newspapers has been swallowed up by Facebook. So, either is Facebook being lovely, cuddly, kind and generous, or is it just a cynical ploy to divert attention away from its data breaches and accusations? It's been disseminating fake news and various other things. Well, I, I think it's both, both. And it's also a cynical ploy to continue to give them a supply of local news, which they need. I mean, the real scandal of this is that Facebook is giving 
a relative pittance when actually they are hoovering up far more money from newspapers in terms of using their content and and giving them a pittance back in terms of the advertising revenue it generates. It is a cynical ploy. I welcome it because it's better than no ploy and I welcome those newspapers. But I do think it's an important point with, and I worked on local newspapers in this country. When I worked on it, I mean, we thought of ourselves as part of the community. We knew the community, they knew us. If you parachute in for a couple of years low people from face trained by facebook and then they go you're not you're going to lose that essential quality of local journalism now I, there's probably nothing we can do about it, but I think we shouldn't fool ourselves that this is the renaissance of local newspapers. Yeah, and this is the point, isn't it, Peter? Because, look, uh, under this scheme, the wages of these young reporters will be paid for two years. What happens when, when Facebook says, right, that's it, you've done your two years? The story of tech companies investing in journalism is not a happy one. They chase whatever is fashionable. Uh, They go for public relations stunts over the long, hard, expensive work of figuring out what's going on in a community. Now, it's true that there's no business model for local journalism anywhere that I've seen. There are now pretty good business models for national journalism in, in, in the UK and the United States. So this is a void. And if this helps uh, some people, even in the immediate term, understand what their local governments are up to, that's a good thing. But let's remember, Facebook's doing this in the middle of the worst public relations fiasco in their young history. I mean, my colleagues, the New York Times, just over the weekend dropped mm. a bombshell that That's shows when Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg first found out the extent to which their platform was being used to disseminate fake news that was undermining American democracy. What did they do? They went out and hired a public relations mm. team to write their own fake and news. And also pa- pa- pulse the buck internally. discredit the people who were bringing these disclosures to light. So, you know, there's not a lot of reason to believe in the, the values of the people mm. who are delivering this. And, and I guess, Ivor, that uh, the other useful thing for Facebook, putting in that money, they'll get a nice tax break on that as well. Well, yes, but they don't pay much tax anyway. No, in they this don't country, pay much tax, so. but, but by putting in by putting in just over <laughs> five even, million dollars, they'll pay a little bit less. Yeah, yeah, um, and I have every sympathy with them. Not, I mean, I do think um, Peter's right um, that the big tech, big big tech, are much more concerned about reputation than reality, and this is reputation. This is a cynical ploy. Okay, well, on that sound note, it brings us to the end of today's show. Peter Goodman and Ivor Gaber, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Paige Reynolds, and Gabriel Delisanti was our, uh, and Gabriel Delisanti and our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music next than at 1900 hours. It's the Monocle Culture Show with Robert Bound, and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye. <laughs>